0: How we doing? They said it was going to snow. It kind of snowed. Seems like it's blown out of proportion. Look out, beware. Oh, it's two inches of snow. Ah, interesting. Everything now, right? It's not just rain. It's an atmospheric river. I've never heard of an atmospheric river before. It's rained a lot harder when I was younger, so I don't know, terms are so funny. Jesus, tonight, we're grateful for a place to meet. We're grateful for the freedom we have in this country that we've enjoyed for centuries now to freely come and to praise and to worship and to learn, and to grow. May we never take that for granted. We pray for places throughout our world where they don't share these same freedoms. Places in India, China, Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, Pakistan, Turkey, tons of places where the freedom we take for granted, they would love We pray that your word would continue to move in those places, grow, the gospel would go forth, lives would be saved, nations would be changed, as has happened throughout history because of your people serving you, the King. We pray for us tonight, Lord. May our hearts be ready to learn how we can continue to serve you as our Lord and as our Savior. So speak, and may we be obedient listeners, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So we are starting a new book. It's right after 1 Corinthians, it's called 2 Corinthians. And if you don't know the church at Corinth, Paul invested more time in Corinth than any other church. In the book of Acts, what you see is Paul, he is a church planter. So he goes somewhere, sometimes just for a week. That's it. Starts a work, entrusts it to people, and then he moves to the next spot. He's fast. He goes to Corinth. He's ready to leave because it's starting to get hot there because wherever Paul went, there was either a revival or a riot. And so a riot was happening in Corinth. So he's ready to bounce when he has this dream and God says, stay there. I have many people in this city. So Paul stays not for a month or even a year, he stays for 18 months in this city. The longest recorded stay he has in one place in the book of Acts. And then he writes two of his longest letters to this same church. In fact, it appears we only have two, but there seems like there may have been four actual letters written to this church. Because if you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse nine, Paul mentions an earlier letter. So it appears that 1 Corinthians in the Bible is actually 2 Corinthians, okay? And then we'll see here that Paul appeared to give them a severe letter in chapter two, verse four. So for I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. So it appears that there's a third letter and second Corinthians is actually fourth Corinthians. There'll be a test on this when you leave, right? So, right, a lot of energy puts into this place, most likely four letters. He also makes an unannounced visit to this church. He calls it his painful visit where he goes and just apparently hammers this church. So Paul was greatly invested in this church. We learn more about the Apostle Paul in 1st and 2nd Corinthians than in any of his other letters. He's very personal with them. He talks about where life was. 2nd Corinthians chapter 11 is a recounting of ministry and what had happened to him like no other chapter in the entire Bible. So it's brilliant. But why does Paul have to put so much effort into this church? could be the city they lived in. Corinth was a crazy city. It was a playground for the rich and the sinful. So if you took Las Vegas and Orlando and San Francisco and squeezed them together, you'd have something pretty close to Corinth. Here's why. If you know the geography of Greece, it's two kind of land masses, connected together by this tiny four mile wide isthmus. Well, Corinth is right on that isthmus and then below it out in the Mediterranean Sea is the Peloponnesian Peninsula, very big area. Well, the sailors who would sail the Mediterranean, they'd try to hug the coast and what they found was sailing around the Peloponnesian Peninsula was extremely dangerous. So there's this idea this king had, it was King Periander in like the seventh century BC. He had this idea, let's dig a canal across this four mile little isthmus and then I'm gonna charge people to use my canal so that they don't have to go through this very dangerous water. So he starts to dig it. And this Egyptian mathematic guy came up to King Periander and said, listen, if you dig this canal all the way through, the Peloponnesian Peninsula, will float away and sink into the sea. <laughs> stop digging. So he's like, okay, I'll stop. Now we can get kind of, whoa, man, they believed crazy stuff back then. Do we believe some crazy stuff today? Like I'll go and uh, look at people's stuff sometimes like social media and they'll be Christians and they'll have on their, their horoscope sign. And I always just think, what in the world? Like, who, who wants to be a cancer anyways? Like, what do you I'm a cancer. I'm a disease that kills millions. Oh, that's awesome. But even more than that, why would a Christian ever look to the stars for wisdom or advice or whatever it is that you would do with your sign or your horoscope? Why would a Christian ever do that when they could go to the king of the universe and get wisdom and advice straight from him? I think it's foolish, right? How about magnetic beds? Anyone tried a magnetic bed? I did one time. I was told if you sleep on this, I didn't buy it, friend did, you'll get energy, it'll be amazing. All I was was uncomfortable all night long. They make a magnetic bed for your pets. I thought, how stupid is that? I don't want my pet to have more energy. I want him to have less energy. I want him to like take Prozac and relax. Like, are you kidding? So we can look back and be like, oh, those fools. Well, we do some pretty silly stuff as well. So King Periander ceased that. And what he did instead was he built this rock road that goes over that five mile, four mile isthmus. And ships would then pull in. He had this entire slave force that would go down, unload the cargo from the ship, put it on these carts, take the ship, put it on rollers, and they would roll the whole thing over reload it on the other side and send them on their way. Well, guess what sailors would wanna do for the three days that they waited for their ship to be unloaded, moved, and reloaded on the other side? They wanted to party. So Julius Caesar saw this moment And right before he was killed, he said, I'm gonna dedicate billions of today's dollars to building something amazing in Corinth to be a playground for the rich and the powerful. So he built this massive Aphrodite's temple, right? Aphrodite's not PG kind of worship there. Every night they said a thousand vestal virgins would come out of Aphrodite's temple and they were anything but virgins, right? And the sailors would play. So Corinth was this crazy town. Lots of entertainment, lots of immorality, lots of just craziness. So the church gets planted in this kind of culture. And you have you know, Christ, you know one-minute people going to Aphrodite's temple, getting saved by Jesus, and now they're in the church. So they brought with them a lot of their Egyptian mentalities, their Corinth mentalities. And so they were into entertainment. So Paul has to like correct some of the church services that were chaotic because that's what they're used to. Like the crazy Aphrodite's temple worship. That's what they tried to bring into the church. So Paul corrects it in 1 Corinthians. They weren't, they weren't a people that were like steadfast on one guy. So they're always bouncy. Like, well, I like Peter now. Well, I like Apollos now. Well, I like Paul now. They were bouncing or they wouldn't steadfastly stick with one person. So Paul says, listen, 1 Corinthians 4.1. It's required of leaders to be found faithful. You gotta have some grit now. You gotta stop bouncing around. You gotta stop being out of control. Get some loyalty in you. They ran from any kind of hardship. So this letter, 2 Corinthians, is the second most suffering book in the Bible. Guess what the first is? Book of Job, right? Job's number one, really hard book. This book right here, 2 Corinthians, has more suffering woven through the entire epistle than any others. And Paul would say this, learn, people at Corinth, that these light afflictions are but for a moment, but they're working in us an exceedingly great weight of glory, that hard isn't bad, right? So Paul in 2 Corinthians, it's his last, if you would, attempt to correct some thinking that was predominant in this church. And he does it chapters one through seven by saying, here's a correct way to think about ministry. Chapters eight and nine, here's a correct way to think about generosity. And then chapters 10 through 13, here's the correct way to think about authority. Brilliant book. Let's jump in. Verse one, 2 Corinthians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ." Yeah, it is a fantastic intro, isn't it? (laughs) Pretty standard for Paul. Notice Paul has a call, he's an apostle. Notice who he's called by, God. Notice he has a companion, Timothy. Notice he has a church, Corinth. And no, he has a community called the I think all five of those things, each one of us should be able to say, what's my calling? Who has called me to it? Who's the people that I'm around with, my companions? Close companions. Right? Somebody that knows me so well, they could put me in prison. That kind of close companion. What's the church that I call my own? Not bouncing around like the corn people do. I like this guy and I like that guy and I like, no, what's the community that I'm plugging into and saying, you are it, I'm gonna stick with you guys. The church that you would say, I want you guys to officiate the funeral of my mother. That's the church you belong to. And then finally, a wider community that we're not, just here to stay inside the four walls of a church. I've said this before, church is halftime. The game is played out there. We come in here, we, we learn some new plays, we high five each other and we're congratulating and all that kind of stuff. But then we listen to a coach, our high coach, Hebrews chapter 12, and we get our commission and we go back out there where the game is played. We're, we're on the field playing the real game. So that's this introduction. And then Paul gets right in, he's, the first thing he's to say right at the gate is this. Listen, Corinth, hard isn't bad. Look at this. Man, she just loves that, doesn't she? This same tone, same everything. Good cadence to her, she's gonna be a singer. Blessed be the God, or is it a boy? It's a hymn, sorry, so sorry. He is gonna be a singer brilliant <laughs> blessed be the god and father of our lord jesus christ the father of mercies and god of all comfort who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same suffering that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Hard is not bad. First thing out of the gate, Paul says something amazing. He says, God, isn't comforting me or comforting you in difficulty to make us comfortable He's comforting us so that we become comfortors, so that we have a relatability, so we are usable. That's why we're comforted. How brilliant is that? I mean, you think about it. If I want some comfort in parenting because I'm having difficulty with my children, I'm not gonna go to the nursery and get a, person who has a newborn and only one newborn and ask them, hey, can you give me some advice on how to parent? Right? Because when you have one child and they're a newborn, you're under this false idea that somehow you will beat the system and raise a sinless saint. That they will never throw a temper tantrum. They'll never scream in church. They'll sit with you silently the whole time. That you will for surely have a child that says, yes, mother, to everything you ask of them. Right, And you can't convince a new mom or new dad that that's not gonna happen, right? The only way they get convinced of that is when their child turns two. And they're like, wow, man, dang, that didn't work. And then you say, let's try it again. That's how every second child comes about, by the way. Hey, let's get this thing another shot, because that didn't work. Let's try it on number two. Who do I want? I want someone that's been through the thick of it with their kids, right? They've seen God's comfort in the difficulty that parenting can be. Marriage, same thing. I don't want a newlywed who believes that, hey, we will never fight with each other. We live happily ever after. No, give me the 40 year olds. There are 40 people that have been married for 40 years and they've learned how to fight fair. I wanna talk with you guys. How do you get through these things? How do you navigate this, right? How were you comforted in your difficulty with your spouse? Those are the people you wanna talk to, right? That's what Paul's saying here. I found this in my own life. So early in ministry, Oregon like led the nation in the death with dignity. Remember Dr. Kaborkian and all that? So we were leading, right? in euthanasia and letting, you know, just killing old people. So well, wow, we're the leaders in that. So people would ask me like, what's your opinion of that? And I just usually quote scriptures. Hebrews chapter nine, verse 27. It's appointed once for man to die. And after that judgment, God makes that appointment. Job 14, verse five, that God has numbered our days. He knows the number of our days. Ecclesiastes three, two, there's a time to die. God knows that date, it's up to him. Cut and dry theology. And then my mom got esophageal cancer and I watched her starve to death. And that was super hard. Well, my theology has not changed, but man, my technique has. Now when I talk to people, about these issues. It's much more, man, death is a curse, is it not? I hate cancer. Death is an invader. We were never designed to die. We were designed to live in God's presence for eternity. And because of sin, man, death has come and it is the final enemy. And one day, praise God, death will be no more. One day, praise God. Every tear will be wiped away. One day, praise God, disease will not exist anymore and we will live the way that we are designed to live in God's presence, in paradise. That's what I say now. Theology hasn't changed at all, but man, because of what I went through and what I found, oh man, my techniques have changed drastically. The comfort I found in my affliction, now I use that to comfort other people. That's Paul Paul's saying here. Hard's not bad, do you know that? This is one of the many things. You can go to Romans five about more good stuff and James chapter one about more good stuff and the entire book of Job about more good stuff. Hard is not bad. God comforts us not to make us comfortable, but to make us comforters. And it's the most brilliant ministry you can have. Straight out of the gate, hard's not bad. And then now Paul says, I'm gonna give you evidence of it from my own life. Look at verse eight. He delivered us from such a deadly prayer and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of the many. Evidence that hard's not bad. Paul says, my life. Here's what you should know about Paul. He's a superhero of the New Testament. Outside of Jesus, probably Paul's second. He's an amazing guy, a go-getter. Read Philippians chapter two. Everything, chapter three, excuse me. Everything Paul tries, he is successful at, right? He doesn't fail. When you start to learn about Paul, it's just amazing. No matter what happens to Paul, he's like stoked on it. It must've made his enemies extremely frustrated with him, right? They're like, Paul, we are going to kill you. Paul's like, good. To die is gain. Okay, we're going to let you live. To live is Christ. Brilliant. I'll do more ministry. This is awesome. Okay, we're going to beat you up and put you in prison. Great. Silas and I will sing praises. We're going to literally rock this place. And they did, right? All oh, right, right, we're going to stone you to death. That's even worse. Hey, these light afflictions, but a moment. And they're working for me an exceedingly great weight of glory. Go ahead, pick up stones, start throwing them. Oh, forget that. We're gonna take all your money, okay? I've been rich and I've been poor. Looks like I'm poor again. Take it all, right? Just on and on and on. Okay, we're gonna kill all your friends. Man, I'm jealous. They made it to heaven first. It didn't matter. That's the way Paul was, except in this text. Did you read? Did you hear verse eight? right? Everything for Paul's a win-win, but something happens to him. Listen to what he says. This is the deepest, darkest verse for Paul in the entire Bible. For we do not want you to be unaware of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. Paul said, it was so bad, I wanted to die. Indeed, we felt that we'd received the sentence of death. What in the world happened to Paul? No one knows for sure. Could be in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a text there that Paul begins to talk about some things. And in verse 32, he says this, I had to fight the beast in Ephesus. It is very possible that this is the reference to that where he was taken in captive and then he is forced to become a gladiator and go out and fight lions. And listen, Paul wasn't six foot two, 240 like Russell Crowe. History says he looked a lot more like Woody Allen. So he'd be worried about that. Like, oh no, I am doomed, right? Life got Paul to the point where he was at the end of himself. Nothing teaches you helplessness like pain and affliction. Nothing teaches you how we don't control things like disease, like being forced to fight in a gladiator ring. Nothing forces you to realize how little control you have and how much, look at the end of verse nine. This was to make us rely not on ourselves, I was out, man, I had nothing left. As successful as I have been, as good as I could do it, as well as I'd done my whole life, at this point, I had nothing left, but I had to trust on God who raises the dead. How brilliant, brilliant. How else did he escape? Verse 11, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessings granted us through the prayers of many. What did Paul just say there? Somehow the prayers of Corinth were a blessing, were causing blessings to come to Paul. Do you know the power of that little verse right there? Do you know the power of of prayer? I think we ignore it all the time, like the power of prayer. Just like, here's my illustration that helps me. Dads. How much will you do for your kids, right? So one of my daughters loved horses. She still loves them. I hate horses. I hate them. The reason why, the the first time I ever rode a horse was in the ninth grade. And I was down in Yosemite and we had hired out this trail trip where you could get on a horse and ride a horse through the trails of Yosemite. So as a ninth grader, I had these fantasies, right? The night before of being like John Wayne or Clint Eastwood and like, wow, man, the trail boss is like, you are the most amazing horse kid in the world. Come on, you know, I'm gonna hire you. So I had these dreams of grandeur, but I'm five ninety 90 pounds soaking wet, right? So you get on these horses and they tell you two rules. Do not let your horse stop and eat and do not let your horse get out of line. Within two minutes, my horse had disobeyed both of those things. Stopping, eating, everyone stopped behind me. I'm jerking as hard as I can. Finally, the the horse behind actually bit him and got him going. But then because he bit him, he went around all the other horses and is running by the side, right? And I'm just thinking, this horse is possessed. I'm pretty sure this is a Revelation six, horse of the apocalypse, right? Oh, so he goes flying along. So the trail boss comes right up next to me and just grabs the reins and stops the horse and just says, come on, son, you're in control here pull back and say, whoa. And I just thought to myself, um, I'm not in control. Lucifer's in control right here, (laughs) right? Hate horses, hate them. But I can remember this dinner where my daughter Caressa, seven years old, I said, would you pray for the meal? She goes, sure. She prays, dear Lord, I'm so thankful for the horse that I'm going to get. I'm so thankful that it'll be black and white and I'll call it sweetie. Amen. So guess what we ended up with? Three horses. Why? Because I'm a dad. I love my kids. Jesus says this about prayer. He says, hey, if you being evil, dads, if you being evil know how good, to good gifts to your children, how much more your heavenly father will give good gifts to you if you ask man, how much do we ignore this incredible, powerful thing that's been given to us called prayer? Paul says, you had to trust God, but also your prayers, because you guys prayed for us, you granted us blessings by your prayer. So Paul's evidence of hard is not bad is his own life. Look at me, and he's gonna keep sharing that. It'll be a theme throughout the book of Second Corinthians is gonna come up in chapter two, just gonna keep coming up, evidence of my life. Look at how affliction has worked great things in my life. Hard is not bad. And now Paul begins to get to a sticking point. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. I just call this future clarity. So let me ask, in your relationships with people, with friends, with companions, with your spouse, with your kids. Have you ever had a misunderstanding, right? They happen all the time, all the time. Paul and this church had a misunderstanding. And this misunderstanding, there's a group of enemies in the church. Paul will call them false apostles. And they had taken this misunderstanding and they were using it as a wedge to drive between Paul and the church at Corinth, right? So they're just trying to separate the two, just like ah ah. Uh, look at Paul, right? That somehow Paul had had a double meaning, bad motives, and Paul's answer is: Listen, one day, one day, we're going to boast about each other. One day we'll get clarity on this, right? Don't you tell that to your kids? We you have to tell them something hard or difficult. One day you'll understand. One day you'll understand why I'm doing this to you. One day when you have a 14-year-old, you know exactly why I did this to you, right? That's exactly what Paul's saying. One day you'll understand this. You may not right now, it's okay. One day you'll understand. For me, the key on minimizing misunderstandings is Philippians 1.10. It says this, approve the things that are excellent. I have that written out at home. If there's two ways to take something, a way that leads to misunderstanding and bad motives and insincerity and all the problems that misunderstandings bring, or if there's another way to take it that says, ah, oh, man, it was just a simple mistake, or maybe you meant it this way, I've made a discipline and a choice in my life to say, I'm gonna see it that way. Every time I possibly can, I'm gonna choose to approve the things that are excellent because it's so easy for the enemy of our faith to take misunderstanding, simple ones, and drive wedges between believers that don't get cured until Jesus comes back. And what a bummer that is. I don't want that. If I can not at all, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna try to frame this in the positive. They must have meant it this way until I'm absolutely certain that it's not, but always approving what is excellent. So Paul says, there'll be future clarity, right? And he tries to clarify now. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And surely, as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanius and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. 4 verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory and it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and it was also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Paul says, on this misunderstanding, he says the focus has to be Jesus. And the accusation is verse 17, that Paul was vacillating in his plans. Hey, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. But really on the other side, he's telling other people, nah, I'm not really gonna do that, right? Making a double meaning out of it. Trying to twist words, right? Trying to say something but not really meaning what he's saying. It might be like this. If you are a parent, you probably had this time where your kids are small and you're in the checkout and you're trying to check out and one of your kids finds a toy that they want. And they're like, dad, mom, Pretty please, pretty please, can I please, please have this pink polka dotted princess with the castle, can I please, please, please? And you say to your daughter, I hope it's your daughter. You say to her, hey, we'll talk about it when we get in the car. What does that translate to? When you are safely tucked in your car seat, away from all these other people, I'll tell you no, right? It's a little double meaning, right? There's no way you're doing it. You just don't wanna do it there in that moment because you know it could explode, right? Paul's saying, I didn't do that. I didn't do this kind of double meaning, kind of meaning it one way with one group and waiting for another group and telling you yes or I'll tell another group, I'm not really gonna do that. Paul says, I didn't do any of that. I'm not doing that. And if you go back to 1 Corinthians 16, in the letter where Paul makes his plans to visit them, He's saying, if the Lord wills, may it be, he is blessedly indecisive. Because he knew, I don't know what's gonna come tomorrow. I don't know what's in my future. I gotta trust the Lord. As James would say, deo valente, if the Lord wills. Right? That's what we should all be saying. But the enemies had taken this idea and the change of plans and they had used it to say, look, Paul doesn't really care about you. It was being exploited by really evil people. And what I love about Paul right here is he switches. And he has a real point in his switch that I think you and I could do well to get. Because here's the point. People, even as great as Paul, will disappoint you. Do you know that? People, even someone as great as Paul, will disappoint you. It's why Paul immediately moves to Jesus, and verse 20 is an underliner, highlighter, circular, it's an amazing verse, because what Paul says is, listen, listen, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus. And Paul's got big theology here, because in the Old Testament, God made promises, but the promises God made in the Old Testament are conditional promises. They were like this, if you do these things, Israelites, then God says, I'll do these things. Conditional promises. If you do this and if you don't do these things, then God says, I will bless you and build you and protect you and make a great nation of you. They're conditional promises in the Old Testament. And there was a provision. If you did something you shouldn't have done, or if you didn't do something you should have done, God said, there's a provision. You take a lamb down to the temple and you make a sacrifice for your mistake. That was the system. But if they were honest about that system, they would have gone broke and that all the lambs would be extinct, right? And what a bummer that system would be, right? Because every time you blew it, you'd be grabbing one of your lambs and walking down the road by all your neighbors and they'd be watching you. Ha ha, he blew it again, didn't he? I mean, what a bummer of a system, right? That was the old system. If, then, conditional promises. And what Paul says in verse 20 is, it's all changed. It's not if, then, it's yes and amen. It's not if, then, it's all is done in Jesus Christ. How brilliant. It's every promise that God makes, meets every need that I have in Christ Jesus. Not in Paul, not in Peter, not in Apollos, not in Matt Heverly, not in Mark Skudstad, not in Dan, not in James, not in Carrie, not in Chad. It's Jesus, because every one of us will disappoint you even like Paul did. There's so many things we can't control, so many things that are, you know, you're trying to balance so many things. Man, we're bound to disappoint, that there's one hero in the Christian faith, and it's Jesus alone. And what you need and what I need comes from him. If you need forgiveness, done in Jesus. You need grace, abundantly in Jesus. You need mercy, yes. In Jesus. If you need purpose, greatly in Jesus. If you need power, overflowing in Jesus. Joy exceedingly in Jesus. Abilities given to you by Jesus. Love, everlasting, never changing love. Yes, from Jesus. Yes, and amen. Every promise God makes meets every need we have in Jesus Christ. He's the only one that will not disappoint you. And so Paul uses this misunderstanding to make one of the most brilliant theological statements in scripture. Jesus won't disappoint you. And then he concludes with one of my favorite ministry texts. But I call God to witness against me it was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over you or your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. Paul ends this first chapter by saying, what we did was for your joy. Paul says, if I would have come back, When I had planned to come back, it would have been a bloodshed, because I was mad. I was seeing red, I was upset, and I would have missed my goal, Paul says, as a pastor, which is to always work for your joy. I love that. It's my life verse in ministry. I don't want to work for power or prestige, or work for authority, or my glory. My goal as a pastor at Edgewater is to say, how do we bring Edgewater's people joy? Not lording over you, not trying to get something from you, but how do we work for your joy? I love that. Paul's goal was the same thing. And Paul says this, because God changed the plans, he spared you from a lot of problems. I would have been the source of those problems. You were spared from them. We would do good to remember this. When our plans change, or God changes things, or things happen, you know, and we think, oh no, maybe a relationship goes sour, like, oh, maybe you were spared. Because I talk to a lot of people in that office over there that are like, uh oh. I tell my kids all the time this there's something worse than being single. And I meet with them all the time in an office. And they walk down the aisle together, and they pledge something to each other, and now they hate each other and they wish they were single. So be careful, sometimes we're spared. Maybe it's a job we really wanted and it didn't happen. Maybe it's a financial decision he thought was gonna help you. You have no idea what God spares us from, no idea. I have this vivid memory when I was like 15 years old of watching this Saturday Saturday night live skit with Chevy Chase. And it was Chevy Chase dies and he goes to heaven. He's up there talking to his guardian angel. He's asking his guardian angel these questions like, hey, you know, so he asks like, hey, what was the biggest mistake I ever made? And the guardian angel says, yeah, you can't handle that. What? What was the 10th biggest mistake ever? Yeah, you can't handle that either. Well, what can I handle? The guardian angel thinks for a second. You can handle the 271st worst mistake you ever made. He's like, really? What? What was it? He goes, remember when you were out on that beach and you were digging in the sand with your son, and you dug down and you hit something hard, in it shoved sand under your nails, and you're like, ow! And your son said, it's buried treasure, dad. And you're like, no, it's just a stupid rock. And you walked away. It was buried treasure worth a billion dollars. Oh man, that was the 271st worst mistake I made. Oh my goodness, right? He's like, okay, what was the worst thing I ever ate? You can't handle that. Well, what could I handle? thanks for a second. Oh, the 1,272nd worst thing. Really? What was it? Remember you're at Dorothy's and you're eating that burrito? Yeah, I do. And you said, man, this is strange rice. I've never tasted rice like this. Yeah, I do. It wasn't rice. It was maggots. Oh, right? We're spared, man. We're spared if we only knew. And what Paul is saying here is, listen, trust me. Trust me, trust that the hard things in your life are serving a purpose, that hard's not bad, that I know exactly what you can take and what you cannot take, and I'm not here to break you, I'm here to build you and to make you usable in the kingdom. Trust me, trust me when plans change. If you've committed your plans to God, if you've really said, hey, Revelation 3, 7, Jesus, you stand and you open doors that no man can shut and you shut doors that no man can open and I am trusting you in this. And if you close a door in this relationship or this job or this move or this financial thing, then I trust you, then actually trust him and say, you must have spared me from something because I'd committed that to you. I've committed it to you and you close that door and I trust you because you are after my joy. I trust you. And that's the only way to live. That's what Paul is now trying to correct the Corinth people in their thinking. Trust Jesus, because every promise of God is yes and amen in Him. So, Jesus, for us tonight, may we trust you. All of us have plans and we should plan. Paul planned. But may we hold on to those plans with a light grip, trusting you way more than our own intellect and our own thinking. When we trust in you, when we commit our ways to you, and may we know that you will direct our paths. That's a promise from you for each of us tonight. I pray for any in here that are going through difficulty and affliction, maybe like Paul, despairing of even life. I pray they would Look to people and share that with folks so that we can join in and pray for them. Pray for God's blessing upon them. And may they know that like Paul, these things produce deep, strong, rooted faith in you. That's the product. And we emerge from them better able to comfort other people in their affliction that you're not there to fetch us a new pillow to make us comfortable, but you wanna make us comforters. So may we trust you. May I trust you even more this day, this night, this week, I ask. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, God bless you guys.